The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. As you grab your seats, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 2. It's where our text will be this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4, this will be our passage for today. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. And I'm I'm so glad to be able to spend time in the scriptures looking at these verses, verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews 2. Would you read it with me? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Would you pray with me? Father, this passage of scripture starts out with the words, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lord, I pray that right now, by your Spirit, you would awaken our senses, you would perk up our ears to be able to hear the importance of these verses. But God, we know that hearing is not enough. We know, Lord, that we are not simply to be hearers of the Word, but doers, people who respond in obedience to the scriptures. So Father, provoke our hearts to action. Help us this morning as we listen for your voice through the scriptures, as we listen to your words penned for us by the hands of faithful servants and apostles. As we listen to those things, God, help us to reflect upon it, converse with you about it, And respond to it appropriately. And we ask this, that our lives might be to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are traveling on a flight from Portland back to Medford. And it's one of those flights where the flight is especially cloudy and and the plane is just sort of hovering in that fog. It's overcast and there are consistent pockets of turbulence where the plane begins to rattle and shake and your, your seat is making a jerking kind of motion. So much so that the the pilot has not taken off the seatbelt sign the entire flight. And the stewardess, instead of getting up and serving beverages and little crackers to everybody, has stayed in her seat, seat belted in at the front of the cabin the entire time. Now as you look out the window, every once in a while you can see the clouds break just enough to reveal the tree-covered mountains below on the crest of the beautiful Cascade Range. The seat rumbles a little as you hit another pocket of air and some turbulence. And you can feel that gnawing anxiety while your brain starts running scenarios of what you would do if the plane went down. Now, as you're pondering this, trying to suppress some of those thoughts, One of the pilots opens the cabin door to the cockpit and you happen to hear the noise and see around the corner and as you look down 
the hallway or down the aisle to see what's going on, you see that the pilot has a panicked look on his face. And all of a sudden, you hear this sound. Terrain, terrain, pull up. Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. What happens to you in that moment? You see, certain sounds are meant to alert us and to elicit from us a response. What did you feel as you heard the imagined scenario or or you heard the warning? Did your brain want it to stop? Yes, affirmative. Did you want to do something about it? Did you want to scream at the pilot and say, hey, hey, pay attention to where you're going. Pull up, listen to the voice. Did you want action to be taken? Did it intensify the need for a change? You know, throughout the book of Hebrews, there will be several warnings that are offered. And these warnings are are meant to alert the reader and to elicit a response to action. And whenever we get into those passages, there is a real temptation for us as readers to try and find a way to alleviate the fear or, or to dismiss the urgency that they intend for us. Because... Those are such strong feelings, feelings of fear, feelings of urgency. They're such strong emotions, we don't really like to feel them. But instead of avoiding those feelings, I would like for us to take a moment to let the warning from today's passage really settle into our hearts and affect us the way that it was intended to affect the original audience. I want to invite us to feel the gravity of the warning to take action in response to what is being said. So let's start by getting a little bit of context for our passage today. Though we don't know who the original audience is in the book of Hebrews, we are able to put together some details about them through what is written in the book of Hebrews itself. And here is some of what we know about them. They have... Hebrew roots and history. They're very familiar with the Old Testament and believe the scriptures to be authoritative. They also uh, have come to faith in Jesus at some point. And because of their faith in Jesus, the author reminds them that they've had to suffer as a result. Would you, would you just put your ribbon here in this passage and then flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 32 to 36. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. The author says to his people, the people he's writing to, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." The suffering of these believers in Jesus has been immense. They have suffered public humiliation, persecution, imprisonment. They've had their property taken away. And not only that, but they've been rejected by the culture around them. You see, Judaism was tolerated at least for a while in early Rome. But Christianity was not. And this had the effect of isolating these Hebrew Christians from the culture around them, from the Hebrew relationships that they had grown up with because they had rejected Jesus as Messiah and they saw Christianity as a heresy. 
But not only that, it had also isolated them from the Roman culture, which persecuted them for their uncompromising stance against idolatry. And these people were isolated not just for seasons, but for years. For years they suffered this isolation. And it's beginning to take a toll on them. You see, under this pressure, some have dropped out of fellowship with the body. Verse 25 of chapter 10 tells us that some of the the people that he's writing to, that many of them have forsaken coming together in verse 25. And some are turning back to Judaism. Others are trying to do some sort of hybrid model where the old system of uh, worship and coming to God is utilized rather than coming to God through Christ. And this way of trying to blend Judaism and Christianity was, was a form, an early form of syncretism that blurred the lines of Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. Now, though it would gain them some acceptance with their culture, the problem was is that it diminished the work of the gospel and it ultimately diminished the role of Jesus, the Messiah. Now you could see how this would happen, right? I mean, that's a lot of pressure to live under. And, and think about the ways that they could justify this syncretism or justify falling out of fellowship or justify moving back towards Judaism. They can say, well, I mean, I still believe in Yahweh as God. I'm just tired of suffering, the isolation. Surely God doesn't want me to have to suffer like this. Or they could say, but, but I, I could just worship Jesus privately. It, it, it doesn't need to be so public. It doesn't need to be this stance against everything. My, my public life can be one way and my private life can be another way. Or they could say, I'm, honestly, I'm just so tired Maybe I I don't have to be so extreme about my beliefs. Maybe it doesn't have to affect every area of my life so severely. And this is what the author of Hebrews seems to be directly confronting. From many different angles throughout the book, he will be saying, Jesus is greater, truer, and better. Don't go back. In the opening chapter, he makes some incredible claims about Jesus, demonstrating that both the message and the messenger are greater than what was revealed through the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, which was facilitated in some way by angels. And he's just told them in the first chapter, if we just go back and do a quick review, if you're back in Hebrews 2 again, you can just glance over at Hebrews chapter 1 and let's take a catalog of the claims that he's made about Jesus. He said, first of all, Jesus is the son whom God has spoken his message through and is the one his message is about. That he is the heir of all things. He's the one through whom all things were created. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. That Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That Jesus made a final purification for sins and that he finished the work and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That he is the king over God's people who currently rules and reigns righteously. That he is the anointed one, the Messiah of God. That he will outlast the heavens and the earth. That he is immutable and unchanging. And though the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, he will never change. He will always be the same. And that his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. And that his angels are sent out to to serve those who are to inherit salvation with him. The same angels that are commanded by God to worship Jesus. Those are some big claims about the nature of Christ. 
So after making that case and laying out those details for us, he then shifts to what he intends for the people to do in response to hearing about Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 1, the author gets to his application regarding these incredible truths. It is a warning about three things that they are in danger of. If you're a note taker, if you're following along in the app, these are those three things. One, from verse one, you are in danger of drifting. You are in danger of drifting. From verse two, you are in danger of disobedience. You're in danger of disobedience. And from verses three and four, you are in danger of discipline. You're in danger of discipline. So let's take a look at each of these components of this warning. First of all, you are in danger of drifting from verse 1. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Did you hear the warning? Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. He is warning them about the danger that they are in. These believers are in danger of drifting, and and drifting is the result of not paying attention. Have you ever had the experience of swimming at the beach and then realizing all of a sudden that you're a half a mile away from where you started? Pushed slowly, almost imperceptibly by the current while you're playing in the water trying not to get pounded by the waves, all of a sudden you look back at the beach or where your family was, where you left your stuff on, on the beach there, and you realize, whoa, I am a long ways from where I started here. The only way that you fight that is to orient yourself by the things that do not move, the things that are immutable and unchanging. If you don't pay attention... You drift. That's just the way that it is. And this is what's happening here. The author is reminding them that they are drifting. They have, they have taken their eyes off the immutable, unchanging messenger, Jesus. And they have taken their eyes off the immutable, unchanging message of Jesus, the gospel. And how did this happen? Well, The current of life is always pressing against them. There's their trials, their own flesh, the cultural pressures, the persecution, the isolation and feeling like an outsider, compounded by the oppression of the enemy and spiritual conflict. It is a slow, steady pressure that is always pushing them away from the gospel and away from Christ. And in order for them to counteract that, they have to press back against it in order to not drift. Because they are drifting from the messenger, Jesus. Notice that he also gives the cure for drifting here. What does he say? He says, pay much closer attention. What should I do about drifting? Pay much closer attention. First of all, to the messenger, Jesus. You know, I asked our staff this week at the staff meeting, how can we pay closer attention to Jesus? And this is some of what they said. My wife, who was present at the the meeting, she said, treat him like a friend. Treat him like a friend. In other words, what you need to do is share your life with him. Let your heart be drawn to him personally. Not just pondering ideas about Jesus. Not just, you know, pontificating theological concepts, but actually relating to Jesus as your friend, coming to him personally, 
Then Aaron Beamish added this. He said, we give greater weight to the more intimate relationships. What they think and say matters more. We give more time, more care, more listening. You see, when we're in a relationship with somebody, all of a sudden what they say has weight, has value because of the closeness of the bond and of the love that we feel towards them. We have to treat Jesus like a friend. Fred said this. He said, we also have to see him in his authority and power. You see, when I, when I see the long list of things that Jesus is, I should recognize him as the one who has charge over my life. He is the king. He is the one to whom I will give an account. He's the king. I'm the servant. His word is not mere suggestions. It actually bears authority in my life. He's the creator of all things. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is currently right now sitting upon a throne, ruling and reigning. And when he tells me to do something or to not do something, that should carry weight. Let me share with you a couple of examples of how we can drift from the messenger, Jesus. You know, it's one thing to say to a friend who is suffering or in trial, hey, praying for you. It is completely another thing to say to them, oh man, my, my heart is breaking to hear what is happening in your life. Can we go to Jesus right now? Can I take you to him? Let's bring our hearts to Jesus. To pray immediately in response. To bring our friends and our loved ones personally to the Lord. To invite his personal care for those that we love. Here's another way that we can drift from the messenger Jesus. It is one thing to study the Bible or to have devotions and journal ideas about God. It is another thing to sit with your Bible open and to read slowly, to create space for connection and conversation with God by talking to him about his word, listening for his response by the Holy Spirit, creating silence and space where you say, God, I've heard your word. Now, now, I'm going to be quiet in this moment because I also want to hear your voice telling me what I should do with your word, how I should respond to it in this moment. You see, we, like these Hebrew Christians, must pay much closer attention to Jesus personally, lest we drift away from him. But it's not just the messenger that we can drift from. It is also the message that we can drift from, the gospel. We can drift from the message, the gospel. We can also drift from the immutable message of the gospel, which is this, this idea that a good God created the world, that it is broken because of the entrance of sin and the fall of mankind, but that he is working to redeem it and that one day he will restore it. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You see, we can lose sight of the fact that our good God is the creator of everything, that he is creator, and that everything else is creation. And all of a sudden, like the, like the folks in Romans 1, we can shift our attention to the things that are created as though they are the things that matter most when they're temporary and fading away. And God himself is eternal, immutable, and unchangeable. We can lose sight of the fact that the reason that the world is broken is because of sin and spiritual conflict. We can miss out on that fact. A lot of times, actually, one of the great errors that happens in justice ministry is that it is compassion without cure. Not leading people to the place where their wounds can be redeemed and healed. But it's simply saying, I'm sorry, here's a handout. 
and then letting it stop there. We can lose sight of the fact that the world is broken because of sin and spiritual conflict. We can lose sight of the fact that Jesus did not come to enhance life and make it more happy. He came to save us and begin the work of building his kingdom. Drifting from the gospel message, we we can begin to think that this is some sort of like therapy for a better life. No, this is salvation for people that are perishing. We can lose sight of the fact that we are all headed for a moment where we will stand before Christ and give an account for what we did with Jesus and what we did with our lives in response to the message about his kingdom. We can lose sight, folks, of the fact that hell is hot and eternity is a long time. And that our hope is not in this world, but in the world made right by King Jesus. We can lose sight of these realities. And when we do, we drift, both from the messenger, Jesus, and from the message, the gospel. And drifting leads to what is talked about in verse 2, disobedience. You are in danger of disobedience, verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He, He says, listen, you can hear the message, and then by the way that you live, you can disobey the point of the message. You can disobey, disobey the point of the gospel. As, as the author continues to hammer home the differences between Jesus and the angels, he now draws the reader's attention to what has happened in the Old Testament. You see, Israel had also received a message similar to the message of the gospel. They were living as slaves in Egypt, and God raised up a deliverer with a message of deliverance. And then through that messenger and through that message, they were set free from their slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on their way to the kingdom of God, the land that he had promised unto them. However, on that journey, as hardship and trial befell the Israelites in the desert, they began to drift away from the message that they had received and from God. They established idols. They complained about the deliverance that he had given them. They longed to go back to Egypt, even if it meant slavery. And in the end, they disobeyed the message and the messenger, and ultimately refused to enter into what God had promised because of the fear that they had, the fear over giants and what it would take to possess what God had given them, the presence of the enemies. They were overwhelmed by it, and they shrank back in fear. And as a result, they disobeyed the message and the messenger. Now, the application for this audience that the author of Hebrews is writing to is clear. Don't repeat the sins of the past. Don't disobey what God has revealed through his son. Did you hear the warning? Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. You see, the gospel message is not just a philosophy. It's not just something to embrace as an idea. To embrace the truth of the gospel is to embrace and live under a greater, better, and truer reality. It cannot be tucked away in the realm of ideas or theories and have no real bearing on life at all here and now. To believe the gospel is to live under its conditions. And if believing the gospel doesn't affect the way that you think, the way that you talk, the way that you love others, then it is likely that you have never really believed the gospel at all. It actually changes the orientation of our lives. 
To believe that God lives in me by the Holy Spirit and that he wants the world to know who he is through my life will fundamentally change the way that I live. I can't separate the idea from its practical application, from its conditions that I must live under. To believe that I will stand before Jesus and give an account for the way that I have stewarded my time, talent, treasure, or even my words will fundamentally change the way that I utilize those resources in my life. To believe that sin is a relational offense against a holy God and that, I will, and that it, it means I'm doing damage to my relationship with God. That inevitably will lead me to needing to repent, to make changes when I'm damaging my relationship with him. You see, the gospel is not simply forgiveness from our past. It is new birth where we live a new life in the kingdom of God, under the rule of King Jesus. And these dear brothers and sisters from the book of Hebrews, they are in danger of hearing the message and disobeying it by trying to syncretize it with Judaism or abandon it altogether. And folks, we can do the same. And this is why we have to pay much closer attention to, to both the messenger, Jesus, and to the message. Because to, to disobey the message is not simply a matter of contrary opinions about the way life should be lived. It's more personal than that. It's disobedience to the message of Jesus and it is disobedience to the messenger. You see, disobedience to the messenger, the author has pointed, to, pointed out to these Hebrew Christians the fact that Jesus now sits on a throne and that all of creation is being subdued under his rule presently. To disobey the messenger, Jesus, is to disobey the King of kings and Lord of lords. Going back to the old system of worship and, and forsaking coming to God through Christ is not just a rejection of the message, it is a rejection of Jesus personally. It is a rejection of his rule. It is a rejection of his authority. And this kind of disobedience is a personal rejection of Jesus. Which brings us to the third part of this warning in verses 3 through 4, where the author concludes this thought by saying, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard, and while God uh, also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Again, they are in danger of drifting. They are in danger of disobeying. They are in danger of neglecting the salvation offered in Christ. And as a result, they are in, in danger of being disciplined by the Lord the same way that he disciplined the children of Israel when they failed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Listen to the author's appeal to authority in these verses. He says, this great salvation that we, have, that we have received, it was declared first of all by the Lord himself. The guy who's sitting on that throne, he's the one that spoke that message to us. And it was passed down by the apostles, those that heard it first. And... It was authenticated by God the Father through him working signs and wonders. And it was authenticated by the Holy Spirit as he was working in the lives of the saints and distributing gifts to the body of Christ. It's been authenticated by all three persons of the Trinity. Paul reminded me this last week of something D.A. Carson said. If, he said, if you look at those verses, contained in that is a summary of the entire book of Acts. The gospel delivered 
by Jesus to the apostles, the apostles preaching the gospel, God working signs and wonders, and the Holy Spirit at work in the life of the church. In other words, the message from Jesus has been thoroughly authenticated by God. His Messiah is the messenger. He performed miraculous signs so that... uh, Miraculous signs that could never be done except by divine intervention. And next he sent the apostles to carry the message to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then to take things a step further, he places his Holy Spirit in those who come to faith in Jesus. And then he gives them gifts to use for his glory. I think, I think there's another allusion here to the children of Israel that's tucked away in this passage as well. You see, they too saw the deliverer. They too experienced the presence of God in the desert. They too saw the word authenticated by, mighty, by the mighty power of God working through signs and wonders. They saw water. It was turned into blood. They, they witnessed the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt. They ate bread that fell from heaven. They drank water from a rock that followed them around in the desert. Miraculous, miraculous signs. But in the end, they ended up having to be disciplined by God for their drifting and their disobedience. And as a result, they wandered around in the desert for another 40 years until that first generation of people who rejected and disobeyed the message of God and his messenger until they died. You see, they saw the miracles, but they never saw the promises fulfilled. It was the next generation that would finally enter into what God has, had promised them. The logic of the author goes like this. If God's people drift and disobey from his message delivered by angels... God will then discipline and judge his people for their neglect. We have history to prove that that's the way that God acted. How much more, then, should we be concerned not to drift away from or disobey God's Son and the gospel message that he brings? Do you hear the warning? Terrain! Terrain! Pull up, pull up. Take action. Hear the heart of the Father. You see, a warning is a loving call to repent. A warning is a loving call to repent. When we hear warning from God, it is meant for us to take action. The Father is calling to us to say, you are drifting. Pay much closer attention. But after the warning, sometimes God needs to bring corrective discipline into our lives. And listen, this discipline, this too is a loving act from the Father. Discipline is the loving act of correction. You know, I can remember when uh, my kids were young going to Chrissy Field State Park, which is right over the border, right next to Brookings, right before you enter and you go past the bug station. Chrissy Field State Park is on the left there. The Winchuck River comes drifting into the Pacific Ocean. It's a beautiful, beautiful little place. And I can remember uh, that when the kids were little, they, you know, they want to play in the water and they want to build sandcastles, but they'd be out playing in the water. And, and because of the current from the river flowing in and, and the way that that beach is formed, sometimes as the current is being pulled, is going back out, there's a strong pull back out into the ocean. And so my wife and I, we would post up on the beach close to the kids and we would be sort of monitoring them as they're playing in the water. And oftentimes we, we could be heard shouting at our kids, hey, hey, you're drifting a little too far out. 
You need to, you need to come back in closer to the shore. The, the water is powerful. The water is strong. And then, inevitably, what would happen is one of them at different times would drift a little too far and all of a sudden the, the waves would sweep their feet and they would fall face first into the water. And we could see that they're having a hard time getting up. Immediately, mom and dad spring into action. We run out into the water. We, we chase our kid down and grab them by their little you know, pants or whatever, their, their shorts or whatever, pull them back to the shore and then we would sit them down and we would give them correction. We could see the fear in their eyes. We knew that they were powerless against the pull of the water. The ocean is so powerful. And we would look them straight in the eyes, get down on, on eye to eye with them, and we'd say to them, listen, that's why we're telling you don't get too far out. The current is strong, and it's going to suck you in, and you're going to be pulled under, and we love you too much for that. So you have to listen to us. We love you. Stay close to us. You see, pulling them to the shore and disciplining them was not punishment. It was love. It was correction. Warning them was not being strict. It was being protective. And the warning and discipline of the Lord works in this way too. As we drift, God lets us know that we're in danger. And should we begin to stumble, he chases us into the water, pulling us back to the shore. Discipline from the Father is not punitive. It is corrective. It is not God tying heavy weights to our feet and then pushing us under the water, trying to teach us a lesson. Now, the water does all the damage on its own. The feeling of drowning is its own punishment all on its own. Rather, the correction, the discipline of the Lord is like God running to where we are, taking us by the hand while we are drowning in our own decisions and dragging us back to shore saying, I told you, I told you that's why I didn't want you to go this way. I love you. The current is strong. Don't get sucked in. Now, it might be tempting at this point to see this message from Hebrews, the words here, as a warning for others or a warning for unbelievers. But I want you to notice the presence of a very key word that's abundant throughout these verses. Take a moment in your Bible to underline all the times that the word we is used in this passage. This is the voice of the shepherd saying, I'm talking to us. I'm talking to Christians. We are in danger of drifting. We are in danger of disobedience. We are in danger of discipline. Notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore, we, he's including himself, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Then verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? says, I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to us. We are in danger of discipline. We are in danger of disobedience. We are in danger of drifting. How do you know when you're in danger? How do you know when you're drifting? In order to know that you are drifting, you need to take stock of where you are. So let me give you some warning signs that may indicate that you are adrift or that you are in full disobedience. I want to give you 10 signs that you are drifting. You ready? Here we go. Number one, you talk about God or Jesus, but you rarely talk to him. Number two, you see church as a place you attend rather than a people that you are. You see church as a place you attend rather than a people that you are. 
Number three, you see the gospel as medication for others rather than life support for you. Number four, when you do pray, you talk at Jesus, but you rarely listen for his voice. Number five, you rarely ever have to confess and repent. Listen, if you don't have to regularly confess and repent, you're not being honest about your heart with, before the Lord. That's going to be one of those disciplines that you will need throughout the course of your life again and again and again and again. Number six, you sing worship, but you are never actually in awe of God. Number seven, you read your Bible, but rarely, if ever, see its relevance to life. Number eight, your heart is not broken for the people perishing around you who do not know Christ. Number nine, you are not excited for or filled with hope over the return of Christ. Number 10, you see God as a distant antagonist rather than a present friend or father. If any of this describes you, the message of Hebrews amounts to God's pleading with you, his warning to you, terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. It is intended that you might take action. This warning is meant, to is meant to provoke a response of action. It is meant to wake us up out of our stupor and to effect a change. Today is the day to do business with God. It is a decisive moment for you to see how far you are from home, how far you've drifted. And in this moment, no matter how far you've drifted, God is inviting you to come back. And no matter how far you've gone, it can be a thousand steps in the wrong direction. It is always one step back. It's turning our face to Jesus once again. Receiving his grace and saying, God, I want to I be close to you. I've, I've been sucked out by the tide of this world. I'm coming back. And the Father will run to meet you. No matter how far you've drifted, it is always only one step back to him. God is not leaving you and yelling from the shore or throwing you weights to hold on to when you're drowning. He is swimming out to you through his word in this moment right now, calling you unto himself if you've been drifting. Through his word and by his spirit, he is calling to you right now to take his hand. And I would encourage you, after we get done talking about the word, we're going to have a, a responsive time of worship. That is a, a moment for you where you as a follower of Jesus can say, God, I, I see it. I have been drifting. I read your word, but I, 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 I don't talk to you. I don't even see its relevance to life. I, I, I pray and I offer prayers, but it's a one-sided conversation. I don't create space for relationship. I give you my laundry list like you're Santa Claus. God, I, I see that this is, this is happening in my heart. And so in response during this worship time, acknowledge that before the Lord and say, God, I don't want it to be this way. Draw me close. I want it to change. Show me where I can take action. Begin discussing with God your desire to resist the tide that's been pulling you away from him. Now, if, on the other hand, this does not describe you, then you have reasons galore to enter into worship right now. You have motivation to live your life in close fellowship with your friend Jesus. You have reason to be hopeful that the world, even though it looks like it's falling apart, is on a crash course with redemption. You know that despite what 
The news outlets tell you the news is actually good. Jesus is on the throne. He is currently ruling and reigning, and he's gathering his people, and he'll remake the world. We are headed for redemption. You have hope today. He won't leave the world broken forever. You have a reason also to share the hope that lies within you. If you're, if you're here and you're like, no, that's, that's my Jesus. He's my friend. I, I absolutely resonate with making space for relationship in my walk with God. And I, I absolutely, when I worship, sometimes, man, I am absolutely in awe of who God is. Awesome. Great. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't take that beautiful treasure that God's given you and bury it. Share it. Amen? Father, thank you for this morning. It is so necessary for us to receive these warnings, and thank you for being such a good father. We recognize, God, that we need to be reminded of the reality of our relationship with you, We need to be reminded how easy it is to to drift from loving you personally. How easy it is to get sucked into the temporary things of this world and not focused on the things that are eternal. We know that the tide is always pulling at us. And thank you for those moments where you lift our head from the waves and you draw our attention to the shoreline where you are calling to us once again. And in this moment right now where we have space to worship, we have space to bring our hearts to you once again. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and cause us to draw near with true hearts, with sincerity to be honest about where we are in relationship to you and to begin to take action, God, that we might change those things. Be glorified in our lives, God. Thank you for being the loving Father who warns us. Thank you for being the loving Father who even corrects and disciplines us. We're so grateful to know that it is your all-seeing eye watching over us and that it is your mighty hand that now protects us. In the name of Jesus.